And he thought this was, he thought this was the greatest advice. You could tell he, he could not wait to tell me and every, anyone and everyone in my situation. He had a twinkle in his eye. And you've probably heard this, but he said, Son, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't what? Date girls who do. Yeah. And he loved it. It was like, <clears throat> this was like, this was like, you know, hick wisdom right there. So I asked this a couple years ago, several years ago now actually, to, to a group, and, and one of them that called out, this is my favorite one, and I have never forgot it, and I use it on my son all the time. He said, his grandpa came up to him and said, son, don't let your alligator mouth overrun your hummingbird brain. And I love that. That is like, that's hick genius right there, because that's just good stuff. I use it on my son all the time. Uh, you'll hear more about him. So, but, but in our text tonight, Paul kind of gets to this point. He, he does, last week, he introduced himself. He says some really profound things in, in verses 3 through 14. And then this time, he, he gets, now he starts talking to the, the, the people in, in Ephesus. And he gets personal. And now he starts saying, this is what I want you to know. So this is like, the, the rest, what we're going to study tonight is kind of ultimately what Paul wants them to know. And he does it by telling him what he prays for most for them. And so we're going to find out a little more about Paul and, and what he prays for and what he values most and what he wants for them in this text. So Jared read it. We're going to start, and you need to know, uh, 15, verses 15 through 23 is, again, one long Greek sentence. There's no break, which I think is highlighting something, that, that there's one strong emphasis that's, being, that's happening here. There's one point, and, and you're going to see it. So, I passed out this sheet, and sometimes when you're reading, reading these verses in, in your Bible in paragraph form, you can't tell... It's hard to tell when, when the author is, is, is moving on to another point or when he's expounding on a point or when he's giving a list. And so I broke the text up this way so you could kind of see how I think it's, it's, it's happening. So you have the first sentence, okay, the first, first verse, 15. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So he's, he says this. Now, anytime you have a, a word like that, it's connecting to the previous verses, similar to like the word therefore. So like if, you know, you, you, you see in a text at the top of a paragraph, therefore, you know that it's, that's a connecting to a previous thought or a previous idea before it. And same is true here. So what is the this that he's talking about? Well, it's, it's what Paul just got done saying about who God is and about what He's done in Jesus, and about who we are in Him, and how we should live in light of that. And so, that, so, so I want to read like a summary of that real quick. And it's this, For those who are in Christ, God the Father blessed us and chose us in Christ. We are holy and blameless in love before Him. God adopted us as His children and lavished grace on us. We, as His children, have been redeemed and forgiven. God made Himself and His plan through Jesus known to us. And we have received this inheritance in Him that gives us hope and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit 
as a promise that we are His. So that right there is enough. Honestly, we can spend the rest of our semester unpacking like each of those lines um, because there is a lot there in those verses. And I need to take a drink because my throat is dry. So, so Paul, Paul's highlighting uh, what God has done, uh, what God is, or who, who God is, what God has done through Jesus, who we are, and, and then now how we should live. And he points to them, and he says, this is what I've known about you, this is what I've heard about you, your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints. <clears throat> if anything, what he's, well, I think what he's describing is, they, as they've grasped what, grasped what he said in the first, few ver- first half of chapter 1, they've lived it out by those two things. Faith in the Lord, love for the saints, which are the brothers and sisters in their church. So, he says, next verse, verse 16, <coughs> I never stop giving thanks for you <coughs> as I remember you in my prayers. So he goes on. Now, from launching from that, he's going to talk about, this is what I pray for. And this is what I want for you. But I want to stop there. I want you to notice, as we go through this, what Paul is praying for. I want to ask you this question, and maybe you can write it down. What do I pray for most? When, when I think about, when I pray for my friends or, or loved ones, like, what do I pray for most for them? I think it's a worthy question to ask. Do I pray like the Bible prays? Like when Jesus prays for someone, what does He pray for? When, when Paul or some of the other New Testament authors, when they pray for someone, what are they praying for? And, and what about me? What do, what do I pray for? And do those things... Are there similarities? Are there differences? I think it's a worthy question. So verse 17, you see in your notes, he says, I pray that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul prays that basically, prays that they would grow in knowledge of God. So he says, the God, and then he goes off and he describes God as the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. Literally, the, the phrase is the Father of glory. That, 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 uh, that God would give them the Spirit. Um, what Spirit? And most believe it's the Holy Spirit based on how it's written, based on the way other, other texts use the same phrase in the same order. The Holy Spirit in wisdom and, and revelation would give them knowledge of Him. Here's the translation. Here's what he's saying. He prays that the Holy Spirit, um, through wisdom and revelation, would help them know God accurately and personally. Accurately and personally. So why accurately? Because it's connected to this idea of wisdom. God wants them to be wise about who He is. God wants you to know Him, not some imagined view of Him. So, if I were to start to describe my wife, okay, my, my wife um, is, she's beautiful, she's five foot two, she's got long, dark hair, um, beautiful green eyes, she loves the mountains, she loves to read poetry. That's my wife. There's a couple, I don't know if you caught it, there's a, a few people snickering, my, my daughter's getting really nervous, because that is not my wife, by the way. At all. 
That's not her at all. She's 5'8", she's, she's blonde, she's got blue eyes. She loves the beach, she hates the cold. My wife would rather be mowing the grass and weed-eating the lawn than reading a book, I promise you. And so if I were to describe her in the opposite way, that, I wouldn't be describing her. And so I wonder, sometimes when we think about God or when we talk about God, I wonder if we're describing who He is or if we're describing a view of Him that we prefer Him to be or maybe um, think He is. So here's another question to ask yourself later. Is God who I think He is? Is God who I think He is? If, if, If I were to have you come up and I just started describing you, wouldn't you want me to describe you accurately? Wouldn't you want me to, whoa, 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 like if I say, hey, I'm gonna, hey Ben, I'm going to be describing you. Okay, what are you going to say? Right? You would want to know. Okay, well, what are you going to say? Is it going to be true? Is it, is it accurate? And I believe God desires the same thing. He wants us to know Him for who He is, how He's revealed Himself to us. He, he gets to determine who He is, just like you would want to determine when someone is describing you. God has an intrinsic identity, and He wants you to know the real Him accurately. But what about personally? Well, because God wants your relationship with Him to be personal. He wants you to know Him relationally. He wants you to spend time with Him. He wants you to know that He knows you deeply. He knows every hair on your head and every hurt in your heart. He knows where you struggle and where you shine. He knows what annoys you and why. He's never misunderstood you. He will always love you. And so God wants to know you personally. God wants to know you accurately. Then he goes on and he says, I pray. So um, in, the CSB has the words, I pray. So like starting a new sentence. Like he's going to also pray for this. But in the Greek, those, the words I pray is not there. That's why I'm, I just emboldened starting at the word that. Because what he's saying is he's praying for the Spirit to give wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Him that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So the reason I put those arrows there, there is to see that he's, kind of, he's going to take this further. He's going to further expound on what I believe to be his point, which is that they would know God, that they would know Him. And so he says that, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know Him. It's one continuous kind of thought and, and expanded. So think about this idea, this, this metaphor of the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Literally, what he's saying is he's, he wants them to be able to see something through their heart that it shines so brightly. Because that word enlightened is this idea of being illuminated and, and, and brightly shining. He's saying, I want the eyes of your heart to see God so brightly that it outshines everything else. And I want to tell you, that is um, really hard to do because there's so many shiny things in this world to to kind of distract us and and get our focus on. And Paul's saying, this is what I pray for. I pray that the eyes of your heart see God in such a way that it shines so brightly that it overshadows other things. And then he goes on to say specifically in three ways. The hope of, his, of, of your calling. The hope of His calling. Sorry. His calling on your life. 
He wants you to have hope in Him. He wants you to see the hope you have in Jesus. Why? Because hope changes things. Um, all of us need it. And, and I wouldn't say now more than ever, it was because we've always needed hope. My favorite quote about hope is from a guy named A.J. Conyers. He says this, that hope has the power to leap beyond the circumstances of the moment. And that's what you and I need. We need hope. We need to recognize the hope we have in Him. His calling us to be His, to be adopted into His family. There's hope in that. He wants us to see it. He also wants us to see the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Here's what I think that means. He wants us to see the joy that we are in Jesus. He wants us to see the joy we are in Him. So in verse 14, if you have your Bible, you look at verse 14 and it talks about our inheritance in the Holy Spirit. He's he's referring to what we inherit by being adopted into His family. But here is different. Here He's describing God's inheritance. Literally what He's saying is that God sees us as His wealthy inheritance. That's what Paul's wanting us to see. He's wanting us to see the... Uh, who we are to Him, who we are to God. That we are His wealthy inheritance. And the third thing he says is, I want you to see brightly the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. He wants us to see the power that is yours in Jesus. Verse 19 um, talks about this. Verse 19, this has four different words for power. In the Greek, it's hard to see, but it's the word power, it's the word mighty, it's the word working, and it's the word strength. All of them are a different variation of a Greek word for power. And so Paul exhausts the Greek language here to, to describe this. And specifically, it's both power toward us and it's power available to us is, what's, is what he's describing in Jesus So it's power to do two things. It's power toward us to overcome. And it's a power available to us to eternally impact. A power available to us to eternally impact. Um, All of us want to make a difference. All of us want to make an impact in this world. None of us can make make an eternal impact in this world without... Jesus, without the power of His Spirit working in and through us. And that's what Paul is wanting us to see. And then he goes off on power, okay? He's triggered by that word power. And, he's, and he goes off, that's the next arrow in this next section, is him going off on this power. And he says, He, meaning God, exercised this power in Christ by... And the first one, you see the list there. There's four things. The first one is this, by raising Him from the dead. If there is one thing that brings validity to everything that Jesus did and said, it's the resurrection. It's not, that, it's not His death on the cross, because a lot of people died on crosses. It's His resurrection that brought validity to His life and to His ministry and to His death, um, proving that 
He died for our sins because He rose from the grave to conquer death, just like He said He would. The gospel, if the Gospel was a spear, okay? If the Gospel was a spear piercing our heart, the resurrection would be the, the tipping point, would be the, the sharp point that breaks through. The resurrection is a huge deal. And he says, it's by, his po- it's by this power that He raised Him from the dead. Second thing he says is He seated Him at the right hand, at His right hand, um, God's right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, every power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, have you ever noticed, maybe some of you reading through the Bible, sometimes Jesus is mentioned as seated at the right hand of God, and sometimes Jesus is mentioned as standing at the right hand of God. Do you ever catch this? I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Whenever Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, He is standing in approval. We see it in Acts 7, um, Jesus standing at the right hand of God when Stephen is being stoned because he's praising God and he's honoring God and they're stoning him and he keeps praising God. And Jesus is standing there in approval of, of, of Stephen and, and, and who he was as a man of God. But every time he's seated at the right hand of God, He's seated in authority. He's ruling and reigning with His Father. Seated on their throne. Ruling and reigning. So this is, an authority, this is authority language. Him, him seating. So, um, and then it goes on and He says, far above. And so what He's describing there, He's not just naming specific things. He's trying to encapsulate everything. He's, he's describing physical and political authorities like Rome and Caesar. He's describing spiritual powers and dominions like Satan and his demons. He's saying he's, he has, he's reigning and ruling over everything, physical, spiritual. The third thing, he says um, this power subjected everything under his feet. Okay, that's, that's a weird phrase. What does that mean? Well, so there is a, a really popular psalm in fact, it is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So a lot of times in the New Testament, authors will quote the Bible to them. So the Bible to, to the people who are writing the New Testament that we have is the Old Testament. And so they'll quote the Old Testament. And the most quoted chapter, the most quoted section of Scripture in all the Old Testament is Psalm 110. Write Psalm 110 down. Go back and read it later. And I'm going to give, give you a couple highlights here. Listen to what Psalm 110 says. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, there you go. Under your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. The Lord is at, my, at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His anger. He will judge nations. He will um, heap up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. Okay, that's pretty strong language. That's who he's describing as Jesus. So let me ask you a question. And we'll talk more about this later, but are you okay with this kind of king? 
Are you okay with Jesus being this kind of king? We'll talk about that. The fourth thing he says this power um, did in Christ is appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills um, all things in every way. So another authority term is, is anointed. A lot of times um, kings and leaders were anointed and set apart. So he's anointed. He's head. Another, again, leadership head, uh, authority term. The, the word church, ecclesia, is the first time it's mentioned in Ephesus, or in, uh, in, yeah, in, Eph- in Ephesians, in this letter. And so Paul's going to talk a lot about the church coming up. The church, ecclesia, literally means called out ones. That's what the church means, is called out ones. So, and then it says body. So this is another term for the church, the body of Christ. You've probably heard that. Body, why, why that term? Why that phrase? It, because it, it, it gives us two pictures. The first one is this idea of unity. That each part kind of does its work, you know. Maybe some of you are familiar with this, this chapter in 1 Corinthians where it talks about us um, being the body of Christ and each of us has a part and we do our, each do our own part. One is a, is a bone or a, a ligament or a muscle or a, a whatever. And we each kind of do our own part to make the body work. There's unity. The second idea that's, that's, that, this, that this kind of pictures is this expanding presence. So wherever the church is, Jesus is present throughout the world. So we are literally the body of Jesus wherever we go as the church. We are called to be His body, His hands and feet. And then this phrase, this kind of strange phrase. In fact, um, every commentator I read, this is the most debated phrase in terms of what it means. Is this, this where he kind of goes off on the church being um, the fullness. I lost my place. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Basically, here's what he's saying. That the church is full of Jesus. And Jesus fills all things. The church is full of the one who fills all things. So, to summarize this last point about this power. Here's here's what Paul's saying. Is that Jesus is the most powerful, is more powerful than anyone or anything. So, down at the bottom of your sheet, this is the point. This is what I believe, this is a summary of what I believe he's saying in, in these verses. And he's talking to, to a church, so he's talking to Christians, and he says, for those who are in Christ, he says, God wants you to grasp the benefit and implications of the gospel by knowing God accurately and personally. Knowing Him accurately and personally. By seeing the hope you have in Him. The joy you are and the power that is yours in Jesus. He wants you to see the hope you have, the joy you are, and the power you have in Jesus. And then He wants you to believe that Jesus is more powerful than anyone or anything. So we're going to take a break. And then we're going to come back and talk a little more about this powerful Jesus. 
And so I want to talk about four ways, four types of knowledge of God. Four ways that I believe that, that, that we should know Him. And, and maybe really what I was experiencing was I, I maybe had one of these, but I didn't have the others. So, <clears throat> four types of knowledge of God. Okay, You can write these down. I think these will be helpful, practical for you to be thinking about. First one is this. It's a humble knowledge. A humble knowledge of God. See, without a humble knowledge of God, Christians become arrogant. They become arrogant in what they know about God. But anytime you read the Scriptures, especially um, in, in, in Proverbs or in Psalms or in Ecclesiastes or in Job, you see this phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I got to, I got to spend some time with this Old Testament scholar who's responsible for in, uh, interpreting most of the Old Testament in the NLT translation. I got to spend time with him earlier this year in a class I took. And, and that question was asked, what, why, why do the Hebrew authors use this word fear? Like, fear the Lord? That, that, that word seems weird to us. We're, I think, honestly, we're afraid of that word fear. But in the Hebrew mind, it's, it wasn't something to be afraid of. It was something that evoked awe and wonder and humility. Because what he was saying was, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because the only way to approach a holy God is in humility. In fact, in the Bible, whenever someone encounters the God or encounters an angelic being, the, the most common response is to fall face down, to fall on their face. In fact, you, if, you, if you want, if you guys know what a concordance or maybe in the Bible app, you can just search face down in the Bible and see all the times where when someone comes encounter in, in the presence of God or in the presence of an angelic being, being, they fall face down. Why? Because it's God. And there's a humility that comes when you are in His presence, when you get to know Him. And so a humble knowledge is important. The second one is this, rational knowledge of God. Rational knowledge of God. That there is a rational knowledge. That God has given us a mind. He's given, he wants us to love Him with His mind, with our mind. He wants our minds to be renewed in Him. And without a rational knowledge, Christians can become ignorant of why they believe what they believe. In fact, this coming uh, next weekend, so next weekend is our retreat, which we'll talk about at the end here. <clears throat> next weekend we have a speaker coming from Ozark Christian College. He, he's a professor in New Testament and hermeneutics, which is what we've talked about last week, and apologetics, teaches apologetics, which is defend, how to defend your faith. And the point of him coming, that kind of what we're hoping to do is, is to learn reasons why we can believe what we believe. Because we need to have rational knowledge of God. The third one is practical knowledge. This knowledge of God needs to impact practical things in my life, how I treat my family, you know, what I do with my money, those kinds of things. It needs to have practical knowledge. And, and, and so those who, who don't have a practical knowledge of God can either be frustrated or hypocritical. So can't handle the day-to-day -day kinds of decisions that need to be made in light of the truth that they know about God. And all of us 
are at some point growing in some of that practical knowledge, but that is something that we need to grow in, the practical knowledge of God. The last one is this. It's kind of a big word, weird word. It's incarnational. Incarnational knowledge. <clears throat> and so the guy that I stole these four things from, his name's John Burke. And so how he describes this last one is it's, it's knowledge of God with skin on. It, is, it is, is someone that carries the presence of God with them wherever they go. So anytime it talks about Jesus coming to this earth, Christmas time, or Jesus coming as a baby, that's called the incarnation. Why? Because it's God that puts skin on and walking among, among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So the same is true for us, that we need, to, we need to represent Christ wherever we go. We talked about that, that we are the body of Christ, that, that, um, that we need to be His heart and His hands and His feet. We need to be Jesus with skin on. So those four things, humble knowledge of God, rational knowledge of God, um, uh, practical knowledge of God, and incarnational knowledge of God. And those who don't have an incarnational knowledge of God are afraid to, to get messy, are afraid to, to, to get into people's lives and, and, and see that, like, wow, people are messed up just like I am. And, and so without this incarnational knowledge, we, we tend to just want to maybe hide in a Christian bubble. And God's called us to go out and to be His, His presence <clears throat> wherever we go. So those four things I think are helpful. The second thing <clears throat> I want to talk about in my time with <clears throat> is this last idea. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> I have had a cold. <clears throat> that God wants us to believe that Jesus is more powerful than anyone or anything. Here's what, I, here's what I believe the Bible teaches about Jesus. This is an aspect of Him that we're not, we're not always comfortable with. We're not quite used to sometimes. If, if all we hear about Jesus is, you know, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Jesus in like old churches or maybe growing up. Um, he's always really, really white. Um, he, he always had this beam of light shining on His blonde hair. Um, not Middle Eastern at all, which... He sometimes had this blue, like, pageant sash. You know, he's wearing a white robe with a blue beauty pageant sash right over here. Holding a lamb, always holding a lamb. Just Jesus. That's the Jesus that I like. Or, or, or what's, what's the, the, the eight-pound, six-pound baby Jesus? That's the Jesus I like. Um, no. So this, this aspect of Jesus in the Bible, this king who's coming to rule and to reign, He's coming to conquer kingdoms that stand opposed to Him. And He's coming to claim everything that's rightfully His. That's, that's who the Bible describes as Jesus. And, and, and especially in Revelation. Um, and so, in fact, at the beginning of Revelation, this is another example of someone falling on their face. John, when he sees Jesus, that's what he does. Falls right flat on his face. He thinks he's going to die. So, this, this King Jesus is wrapped up in this language, Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus is Lord. Um, that's the idea that's being get across. He's Lord, He's King, He rules, He reigns. 
And the reason that this one steps on our toes is because we are often building little kingdoms for ourselves. And those kingdoms stand against Him. They stand opposed to Him because they're not built by Him. And this happens whenever we want things that, that ultimately aren't good for us. So about 10 years ago, we, my family and I moved here from Southern California. And my son at the time was, thir- it was three and a half. And it was, it was right around three years ago, or 10 years ago, when this happened. But we were, we were getting ready for dinner. My wife had made this great dinner, sat down, all the food on the table. We sit there, and my son, three and a half years old, had this brilliant idea to him. Every, every idea he has is brilliant. And he said, he said, I don't want to eat this dinner. And I said, okay, well, what would you eat? He said, I want to eat candy. I want candy for dinner. And I said, why would you want candy for dinner? And in his mind, this makes total sense. Because it tastes better, and, and I think he probably added a duh. And, and I, listen, if you think I'm exaggerating this three-year-old sarcasm, I promise you I'm not. Uh, he had mastered it early. Um, and so he, he probably responded, at least in my head, responded back, because it tastes better, duh. Um, and I said, well, no, I'm not giving you candy. He said, why? I said, because I love you. And he said, well, stop loving me and give me some candy. <laughs> because in his mind, it, did, it made total sense. Why would I eat something that I don't like, like broccoli and chicken? We always have chicken. Why would I eat broccoli and chicken when I can have candy? It tastes so much better. See, what, what he is not thinking about is his physical health. He has no idea what candy at dinner does to his body. He's not thinking about his emotional health. He has no idea the statement, stop loving me. He's not thinking, I'm going to need therapy because my dad just stopped loving me when I was three years old. Three and a half, he, he just stopped loving me. And so I'm going to, now, my son's going to need therapy because of me, but like, imagine if I just stopped loving him. He would, he would need even more. He's going to need plenty. Um, and he wasn't, he, he wasn't, either he wasn't seeing or he just didn't care about the consequences of what he wanted. He just wanted what he wanted. And I think about that all the time because that's me. <laughs> I just think, this is what I want. I, I don't know if it's good for me. I don't think it's good for me. I know God does, probably doesn't want me to do it, but this is what I want. And so I want you to imagine this three-and-a-half-year-old. Let's say he ignores our, our advice and he sneaks candy starts sneaking candy late at night and he's eating candy constantly and and then he can't eat regular food and I mean what would what would we do as parents what would we have to do be willing to do to stop him from doing this behavior that is hurting him the answer is like anything like we would be willing to do anything to stop him from hurting himself And the same is true for us and for God. Every time I see what I want and and, and, and that it's not what God wants for me, I start to build a kingdom for myself where I am in charge, where I am king. And it stands opposed, not only stands opposed to Jesus, but it's not what's best for me. Romans 1 describes this, this kind of Ways that we do this in three ways. It says that when, whenever we claim we know what's best for, for us, 
more than God, that, that we know what's best for us. He says, it's whenever we seek our own glory instead of God's. It's, it's when we want people to be impressed with us when God's the one that deserves the credit. And third, it's whenever we worship and serve created things. Things that were created to, to bring us pleasure, ultimately to send us back to worship Him. Like everything that was given in this world, everything that you think is beautiful, or the, anything that you love, or anything that you desire, all of it was given ultimately to lead you to worship. Because we are made to worship Him. And, and so things like sex and money and, and, and food or influence or the gifts and abilities you have or experiences or even, even other people, anything created that you love, that you, do, that you desire, was ultimately meant to, give, to, to lead you to worship Him. And instead, Romans 1 says, we worship those things. It's the, our worship stops at, at the thing. And it doesn't continue on to our Creator. So every time we do these things, we're building little kingdoms where, where we're king, and it stands in opposition to Him and His coming kingdom. And the bad news is that Jesus is going to come and just demolish those things. He's coming to conquer those things. So in, including all the little things that we're building for ourselves. But the good news is, He's doing it because He loves us. Praise God, because we were made to worship and serve our Creator. We were made to know and love our God. And so, I want to give you uh, a couple minutes here. I want, you to, I want you to think about this question. In what ways are you most likely to try and build a kingdom for yourself? In what ways um, are you seeking to do what you want regardless of the consequences. I think it's worth asking these tough questions, reflecting on these things. And so take a couple minutes. I think we're going to play some music. Take a couple minutes and, and think about that, and then I'll come back and I'll close in prayer. Thank you. 
All right, let me pray. Thank you, God, that because of the gospel of Jesus, that we can see these ways more clearly. Thank you for the hope that we have in you, the joy that we are to you, and the power that is ours available to us and toward us in Jesus. May you enlighten our hearts to you. May we grow closer to you in our knowledge of you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.